0: Welcome to a History of the Space Race podcast. Episode 8 Man Raiding Mercury. Before sending a human into outer space, NASA wanted to make sure that it was safe to do so. At the start of 1959, There were many outstanding questions. What would be the effect of high energy radiation and cosmic rays on humans in outer space? Could a human withstand weightlessness for long periods of time? Could a human be safely launched on a rocket and survive re-entry? Some of these problems were addressed quite early. By keeping the first manned spaceflights between 80 and 120 miles in altitude, the astronauts would be kept well below the Van Allen radiation belts. The second problem, enduring weightlessness, was a question to be answered by the Mercury program itself. But in the meantime, something akin to weightlessness could be simulated in water. The main outstanding problem for NASA was the reliability of rockets. This was not an easy problem to solve. Rockets in the late 1950s were simply not reliable. We saw this with the early failures of the Vanguard rocket. We saw this again during the Pioneer program with the repeated failure of the Air Force Thor missile. Even the Jupiter-C version of the Redstone, considered old reliable, failed during the initial Pioneer missions. NASA soon tackled the problem of man-raiding rockets. That is, ensuring that a rocket was sufficiently safe and reliable enough to take the risk of putting a human on top of it for a ride. But how does one determine when a rocket is safe enough? The Soviets decided that a spacecraft and rocket would be deemed reliable after two flawless flights. Thus, as we saw in the last episode, the Soviet government required Korolev to launch two unmanned, pilotable versions of the Object K before permitting the first manned flight. Within NASA, determining reliability was not so clear cut. One approach was to use reliability statistics. This methodology gained popularity after the Second World War. Reliability statistics posited that as machines became more complicated, higher quality control measures must be applied to each individual part to ensure the same standard of overall reliability. For example, a car made in 1959 might have 688 critical parts compared to a car in 1927 which might have 232 critical parts. The failure of any one of the critical parts could stop the car from working. Thus, each part in the 1959 model had to be more reliable to achieve the same standard of overall reliability as the 1927 model. With an estimated 40,000 critical parts in the Atlas Missile, and another 40,000 critical parts in the Mercury Capsule, reliability statistics suggested that quality control standards needed to be very exacting. But some dismissed reliability statistics as a kind of astrology. The critics believed that reliability had to be designed into the device. It either was or was not reliable. This was essentially a qualitative view versus the quantitative view of reliability. NASA's contractor for the Mercury capsule, the McDonnell Douglas Company, tended to take the more qualitative view. Each part for the Mercury capsule would go through a process of evaluation, stress testing, design review, failure reporting, And failure analysis. A device could only fail a certain number of times before a redesign would be mandated. Yet another method to provide for reliability was incorporating redundancies into a design. But deciding what to make redundant was up for debate. For example, the Department of Defense was aware that its missiles didn't always work. The solution it chose was missile redundancy. That is, building more missiles for overkill. The idea being that even if only 1 in 4 ICBMs worked and hit their target, that would still be reliable enough to serve as a nuclear deterrent. Obviously, missile redundancy could not work for NASA. Each failed missile meant potential astronaut fatalities, so NASA's Space Task Group, in charge of the Mercury Program, set about examining 60 Redstone and 30 Atlas missile launch failures. The Space Task Group was to identify general ways in which a rocket failed. They would then design redundancies for these parts of the rocket. Needless to say, the process of man-raiding a rocket would take longer and cost more than a typical rocket required by the Department of Defense. For example, one estimate was that a NASA man-rated Atlas missile could cost about 40% more than the military version of the Atlas. Ultimately, NASA fundamentally lacked confidence in the reliability of the rockets available to it. This was evidenced from the priority that NASA gave to developing an emergency escape rocket. This emergency escape rocket would sit on top of the Mercury space capsule. In the event of a problem with the main booster, this escape rocket would pull the Mercury capsule away. By mid-1960, Project Mercury transitioned away from mainly research and development into an operational phase. In other words, NASA was going to start launching Mercury capsules to verify that systems worked. At Cape Canaveral, NASA acquired Complex 56 for Redstone launches and the now historic Complex 14 for Atlas missile launches. In Episode 6, Project Mercury, I mentioned that the Redstone rocket would be used to qualify the Mercury capsule on suborbital flights. The Atlas missile would then be used to launch the Mercury capsule into orbital flights. You might think then that the suborbital Redstone launches would happen first followed by the orbital Atlas launches, especially since the Redstone was a well-tested and reliable rocket, while Atlas was still having its kinks worked out. But in the interim, Werner von Braun kept modifying the Redstone rocket. His intent was to improve reliability and make sure that aborts would be safely conducted when required. But to the annoyance of Robert Gilruth, the head of NASA's Space Task Group, these changes were so extensive that the reliability history of the Redstone rocket was no longer relevant. The Redstone was now so different that its reliability needed to be proven all over again. Here, Von Braun and Gilruth simply had different engineering philosophies. Von Braun tended to over-design. His goal was to ensure that aborts, when required, would ensure pilot safety. Ruth tended to underdesign, his goal was to avoid having to rely on an abort system at all. Because of the redesign and delivery issues with the Redstone rocket, the Atlas rocket was actually available for Mercury launches first. So counterintuitively, NASA's first test launch began with the more powerful and less proven Atlas, rather than the less powerful, but more proven, Redstone. On July 29, 1960, the MA-1 stood ready for launch at Complex 14 in Cape Canaveral. MA stood for the Capsule-Rocket combination, meaning Mercury-Atlas. The number one was, of course, because this was the first launch of that combination. Although the Atlas was capable of launching Mercury into orbit, this test would be a suborbital flight, just to test the re-entry of the Mercury capsule. As it turned out, the MA1 test proved to be the start of three high-profile failures for the Mercury program in the latter half of 1960. Just under a minute after launch, Both the spacecraft and booster were lost. The worst part was that the weather was so bad that there was no visual contact at the moment of loss. So in addition to the failed launch, NASA was at a loss as to what went wrong. After reviewing some debris, NASA guessed that something had gone wrong with the connection between the Mercury spacecraft and the Atlas rocket. But this was just a guess. The failure of the MA-1 mission led to a wholesale review of the Atlas as a launch vehicle. And this was a big deal. Because remember, the Atlas was the only rocket available to NASA that could put Mercury into orbit. The plan for a second test, the MA2, was put off until the problems could be identified and resolved. On November 8, 1960, Mercury failed another important test. The plan on this day was to launch a Mercury capsule on a Little Joe booster. This was the booster used only for atmospheric tests. The goal was to see if the emergency abort system would still work at max Q. Max Q is the point where the dynamic pressure on the rocket during its flight through the atmosphere reaches its maximum. Or, to put it in simple terms, it is the point during ascent when the structure of the spacecraft and rocket are under the most stress. If the emergency escape tower could work under these conditions, then the escape system would be certified. Unfortunately, this test failed due to an incorrect sequence in the firing of the rockets. The escape tower attached to the top of the mercury capsule ignited prematurely 16 seconds after liftoff when the main booster, the Little Joe, was still thrusting. The result was that the Mercury capsule was not pulled away from the booster. Instead, the escape rocket, the Mercury capsule, and the Little Joe booster all stuck together. The third, and probably the most embarrassing and dangerous, of Project Mercury's three launch failures, happened on November 21st, 1960. This was the test of the MR-1, that is, the Mercury-Redstone combination. At first, the launch appeared to have gone according to plan. A plume of smoke and fire billowed from the bottom of the Redstone rocket. A camera meant to track the launch panned upward and followed an object that had clearly flown into the sky. But when the smoke cleared, MR-1 remained standing on the launch pad. Those on site with more experience quickly dove for cover. They realized that all that had launched was the escape rocket on the top of the Mercury capsule. And what goes up must come down. The escape rocket ultimately crashed onto a beach about 400 yards away a few seconds later. Terror then ensued. A fully fueled rocket was standing on the pad. Without knowing what went wrong, the worst case scenario was that the rocket would suddenly explode. The risk was heightened by the fact that, for some reason, The parachute on the Mercury capsule had deployed. A strong wind, a common occurrence at Cape Canaveral, could catch the parachute and pull the rocket crashing down. An accident not unlike the R-16 explosion that befell the Soviets just a month before was a distinct possibility. Technicians at a nearby blockhouse slowly evacuated in pairs to limit casualties in the event that the rocket suddenly exploded. Fortunately, no explosion happened. The technicians were able to secure and disarm the rocket the following day. A subsequent investigation revealed that the problem was with a two-pronged electrical plug at the base of the Redstone rocket. While on the ground, this electrical plug provided power to the rocket. As the rocket lifted off, the plug would detach. The rocket would then switch to internal power. During a previous redstone launch, one of the two prongs had been filed down because it didn't fit. This meant that during liftoff, one of the two prongs would disconnect milliseconds before the other. The redstone circuitry had been designed in such a way that if one prong disconnected and the booster was not grounded, a signal would shut down the rocket engine. But in prior Redstone launches, the engine had not been shut down. The Redstone lifted off so quickly that the difference in time between the disconnection of the first and second prongs was not detected by the circuitry. This time though, The added weight of the mercury capsule on top of the redstone slowed the liftoff just enough that the disconnection time between the first and second prongs entered the detection threshold of the rocket's circuitry. The result was that the redstone prematurely shut off the engine about four inches above the ground. The rocket then landed back on the launch pad, intact. The 4-inch launch then set off a sequence of automated events like a runaway Rube Goldberg device. Because a launch had occurred however briefly, the Mercury spacecraft proceeded with its pre-programmed actions. First, upon detecting that the Redstone rocket engine had shut down, the spacecraft ejected the escape rocket. This was normally done at the end of powered flight since the escape rocket is no longer needed at this point. Second, the spacecraft then detected a gravity field. So the spacecraft believed that it was returning to Earth, even though it never left Earth. This caused Mercury to deploy aluminum chafe to increase its radar signature and its parachute also deployed as if landing. One important lesson for NASA from the launch failures in the latter half of 1960 was to move away from automated systems. NASA's goal was always to have an active role for the astronaut, but to ensure that the spacecraft and rocket were safe for humans, NASA first had to prove reliability using an automated system. Yet these automated systems created their own reliability problems. Correctly automating the sequence of events was difficult. This had happened during the Little Joe test when an incorrect sequence caused the escape rocket to prematurely ignite. An automated sequence could also lead to a cascade of problems if there was an issue anywhere in the pre-planned sequence of events. This was painfully demonstrated by the runaway actions of the Mercury spacecraft during the MR-1 test. By contrast, a human would have known better than to prematurely release the escape rocket, or proceed with the events that made MR-1 a near-total disaster. Going forward, NASA would choose to put more emphasis on manual control, especially for the abort system. Although NASA was learning, its lessons were coming at a time of severe political scrutiny. The latter half of 1960 was a presidential election season. President Eisenhower's second term was coming to an end. The candidates to succeed him were Vice President Richard Nixon and the young upstart Senator John F. Kennedy. Under President Eisenhower, NASA had made a lot of scientific progress in outer space. But space exploration was just one of many long-range national priorities. Eisenhower did not emphasize manned spaceflight. He insisted that the United States was not in a space race. And he did not view achievements in outer space as a threat to national security. Despite genuine progress in space, the pervading feeling was that NASA had not quite restored the nation's prestige. If anything, the Soviets were still ahead of the United States. With Project Mercury encountering delays, NASA recognized that it was quite likely that the Soviet Union would be the first to put a man into outer space. As a result, NASA began emphasizing goals beyond the first manned spaceflight. On July 29, 1960, NASA Headquarters announced plans to follow up Project Mercury with Project Apollo. This was a plan to place a spacecraft with a crew of three astronauts in sustained orbital flight, or to conduct the first circumlunar mission to the moon. By announcing Project Apollo, NASA was now casting Project Mercury as an indispensable step to greater things, not as a race against the Soviet Union. The message was that Mercury would continue whether or not the United States was first in space. President Eisenhower's support for Project Apollo, however, was rather apathetic. Eisenhower's position on space exploration created a vulnerability for his vice president during the 1960 presidential election. Senator Kennedy exploited to the hilt the idea that there was a missile gap between the Soviet Union and the United States. Now in reality, there was no such thing as a missile gap. As I mentioned in episode 5, The Soviet Space Program The Soviets had the world's first ICBM, but the R-7 missile was not an effective weapon. And the Soviets only had a handful of them. But to the American public during the 1960 presidential campaign, the missile gap seemed very real. Indeed, news about the race to space was second only to the election coverage itself. In May and August 1960, the Soviets sent up Korbol Sputniks 1 and 2. These were obviously tests in anticipation of future manned flight. In September 1960, Khrushchev, while in the United States for a UN General Assembly meeting, also told reporters that the Soviet Union was ready to launch a man into space, though it had not yet made the attempt. Khrushchev's words were later given credence in mid-October when American forces detected Soviet tracking ships deploying to the oceans. During these same months, the Mercury program presented America with only failures. The MA-1 test failed without NASA even knowing why. The Little Joe test had been a waste of time due to erroneous sequencing. Then there was that embarrassing 4-inch launch of the MR-1. It was in this context that President Kennedy's campaign speeches summed up American frustrations when he said the following. The first vehicle in outer space was called Sputnik, not Vanguard. The first country to place its national emblem on the moon was the Soviet Union not the United States, the first canine passengers to outer space who safely returned were named Strelka and Belka, not Rova or Fido or even Chequers. Senator Kennedy and his running mate, Senator Lyndon B. Johnson, complained that Eisenhower's short-sighted, penny-pinching policies had led to the missile gap, a loss of American power, and a loss of American prestige. But despite problems in America's manned spaceflight efforts, the United States was actually doing quite well in space exploration generally. If anything, the United States was clearly superior to the Soviet Union when it came to scientific exploration and the practical uses of outer space. For example, in the area of communications satellites, the United States was far ahead of the Soviet Union. The United States had launched the first communication satellite on December 18, 1958. This was Project SCORE, which stood for Signal Communications by Orbiting Relay Equipment. On August 12, 1960, the United States also launched ECHO 1. This was the first passive communication satellite. It was basically a gigantic mylar balloon, or sateloon, from which radio signals could be bounced. The satellite was so large that it could actually be seen with the naked eye. During the first orbit of Echo One, President Eisenhower sent the inaugural address. By reflecting the radio signal off of the balloon, Eisenhower was able to send a message from New Jersey to California. Soon, NASA was working with private companies, such as AT&T, to develop the first active communication satellites. The United States was also ahead in weather satellites. On April 1, 1960, the United States launched TIROS-1. This stood for Television Infrared Observation Satellite. Within days, TIROS-1 proved its worst. The satellite tracked a typhoon forming 1,000 miles east of Australia. This was the first early warning of a major weather event by satellite. Then, of course, there was military reconnaissance. Under the CIA's Project Corona, satellites known publicly as Discoverer prepared to gather the first satellite images of the Soviet Union. On August 11, 1960, Discoverer 13 ejected a capsule from space, which the United States recovered mid-air using a C-119 flying boxcar with a trapeze net flown behind it. In this case, the capsule did not contain any photographs of the Soviet Union. It was simply a test of the recovery system. But this was the first time that anything had been recovered from orbit. This beat Korobol-Sputniks-2 orbital recovery by just a week. A few days later, the United States repeated the capsule recovery with Discoverer-14. This time, there were photos of the Soviet Union. This provided the United States with a wealth of new information about the disposition of Soviet military assets. Overall, while the United States was behind in manned spaceflight, Manned spaceflight represented only a small portion of the United States' outer space activities. To give you a bigger picture, in the three years since Sputnik, a total of 42 vehicles had been launched into space. This included 38 satellites, three solar satellites, and one lunar probe. Of the 42 vehicles, 33 were from the United States. Only 9 were from the Soviet Union. In terms of weight though, there was a difference. Soviet launches still remained much more impressive. The Soviet Union had hoisted about 87,000 pounds of material into space on its 9 launch vehicles. This was in comparison to the United States' 34,000 pounds on 33 launch vehicles. Nevertheless, the idea that the United States was somehow way behind the Soviet Union was an absolute misconception. But it was a strongly held misconception. Under the rather unfounded mood that the nation was somehow falling behind the rest of the world, in November 1960, the United States elected Senator John F. Kennedy as the next president. By about 118,000 votes. After the presidential election, the prospects for Project Mercury began to brighten. On December 1, 1960, the Soviet Union launched Korobol Sputnik 3. Publicly, the Soviet Union announced that Korobol Sputnik 3 had burned up in the atmosphere. This gave NASA a little bit of relief as it suggested that the Soviets were having just about as many problems with their spacecraft as NASA was having with its. But of course, we know today that this was not the case. Coral Sputnik 3 had actually been successful. The spacecraft was not recovered only due to a self-destruct device, something that would not be present on a manned launch. On December 19, 1960, NASA's hopes brightened further with the successful MR1A test. This was the second test of the Mercury-Redstone combination. The suffix A had been added to the mission name to denote that NASA was redoing the failed test from back in November when the rocket only lifted off by about 4 inches. MR1A brought an unmanned Mercury capsule up to about 131 miles in altitude and 235 miles downrange in a suborbital flight. The flight went nearly perfectly, although NASA learned that it did need to improve cleanliness standards. When the spacecraft achieved weightlessness, cameras inside the spacecraft showed debris like washers, nuts, and wire clippings floating around the cabin. With the success of the MR-1A mission, NASA hoped to build success upon success and pull the nation's manned space program out of a nosedive. But in December 1960 and January 1961, the manned spaceflight program faced an uncertain future. The Eisenhower administration was in a lame duck period, so while President Eisenhower would continue to set policy priorities for now, those priorities could change in just a few months with the new president. Even in the lame duck period of his presidency, President Eisenhower remained fiscally constrained when it came to manned spaceflight. At the end of 1961, NASA requested $1.1 billion for its total budget for fiscal year 1962. The Eisenhower administration cut that request by about $200 million to $900 million. Of the $900 million, only about $114 million was earmarked for Project Mercury. This contrasted sharply with the $584 million earmarked for the Department of Defense's military astronautics. Moreover, Eisenhower was unwilling to extend manned spaceflight efforts beyond Project Mercury without a valid scientific reason, which he did not see. This meant almost no funding for NASA's Project Apollo. Given Kennedy's severe criticism of Eisenhower's space policies on the campaign trail, you might think that Kennedy would reverse Eisenhower's policies and provide more funding for NASA's manned spaceflight efforts. But you would be wrong. Before taking office, Kennedy established an ad hoc committee to advise on next steps for outer space. This committee was led by Jerome Wisner of MIT and would generate what is called the Wisner Report. The Wisner Report was ultimately a political document, not a technical one. No one on the committee consulted with NASA or even listened to briefings by NASA Administrator Glennon or his staff in preparation for the report. So while the factual statements in the report need to be taken with a grain of salt, the report does capture the initial policy direction of the Kennedy administration. The Wisner report basically concluded that NASA had put too much emphasis on manned spaceflight. The report described Project Mercury as being a hurried crash program. The Wisner report suggested that focus should instead be given to scientific exploration and the practical uses of outer space, such as weather and communication satellites. Underlying the Wisner report's recommendation was a shrewd political calculation. If NASA endorsed the manned spaceflight program, then he would have to take the blame for any possible failure. And there was a significant risk of national embarrassment if a launch failed and an astronaut died. Remember, at this time, NASA still wasn't quite sure why the Mercury Atlas 1 flight back in July 1960 had failed. If Kennedy did not endorse the manned spaceflight effort, It could be treated as a holdover from the Eisenhower administration, and Eisenhower could be blamed for any failure. In short, Project Mercury was not going to receive any relief from the change in presidential administrations. A fortunate result of NASA's uncertain future, however, was the appointment of James E. Webb as NASA Administrator. Webb would be NASA's administrator from 1961 to 1968. If you could identify one person most responsible for getting the United States to the moon before 1970, that person would be James E. Webb. Ironically, though, Webb was not the Kennedy administration's first choice for NASA administrator. He was not even their second choice or their third choice order 4th, 5th, or 6th, or 7th choice. By one account, he was the 17th choice for NASA Administrator. After the election, Kennedy had given responsibility for selecting the new NASA Administrator to Vice President-elect Lyndon Johnson. Because Johnson had a strong interest in a space program, Kennedy basically referred space issues to Johnson. Johnson found that no one wanted to be NASA Administrator. This was due in part to NASA's uncertain future. The manned spaceflight program looked like it might be on the verge of cancellation. And no one wanted to be the administration's scapegoat in the event of failure. Another problem was Johnson himself. To put it politely, the vice president was not an easy guy to work for. More than one candidate was said to have turned down the post because the head of NASA would have to work closely with Johnson as the president's point man on space issues. As a result, the new president took office without a NASA administrator in place. The previous administrator, Glennon, had resigned at the end of the Eisenhower administration. After all the emphasis that Kennedy had placed on a space program during the election, the press began to ask why there was not even a nominee for NASA administrator. Kennedy referred the press to Johnson. With one candidate after another turning down the position of NASA administrator, Johnson eventually offered the position to Webb. Webb did not quite fit what Johnson was looking for. Initially, the goal was to find someone well-versed in technical issues, as recommended by the Wisner Report. Webb did not have that technical experience. What he did have, though, was significant management experience. He had ended up heading numerous corporations, including as director of the McDonnell Aircraft Corporation. He also served as the Director of the Bureau of the Budget, which today is better known as the Office of Management and Budget. And he had been an Under Secretary of State for the State Department. This latter international experience was seen as particularly useful because Kennedy was interested in cooperation with the Soviets to prevent space from becoming another theater of the Cold War. After Webb received the job offer, he flew to Washington, D.C. to investigate. He knew that the Wisner Report was dead set against a manned space program. His investigation confirmed that the Kennedy administration was not interested in manned spaceflight. Because of this, just like all the other candidates, Webb was not interested in the job but Webb was a small-r Republican in the same vein as George Washington. What I mean is, he did not want to serve, but if he was asked, he felt compelled to do so. To put it in his own words, he decided that he would turn down the job if he could honorably do so. Johnson and Kennedy, though, would make that honorably part a bit difficult for him. Reportedly, Webb was called to visit the vice president. While waiting in the anteroom, Webb bumped into Hugh Dryden. Dryden, incidentally, had been reconfirmed as NASA's deputy administrator. Webb told Dryden that he was not the right guy for the job. Dryden agreed. An acquaintance of theirs, Frank Pace, also happened to be there. Pace agreed that Webb wasn't the guy for the job either. Pace then agreed to go tell the Vice President that Webb was not the guy so Webb could avoid having to decline the job offer. Pace went into the Vice President's office and then he was ejected moments later with his tail between his legs. Webb was then ordered into the VP's office and he was given the Johnson treatment which apparently was a lot of berating. Probably this was not the best way to recruit someone, but that was Johnson and that was why no one wanted to work for him. Webb continued to resist. He said he would not accept the position unless asked to serve directly by the president of the United States himself. So he was told to go meet the president that afternoon. President Kennedy made the offer, and Webb could not honorably refuse. And that was how we got the greatest NASA Administrator of all time. If the White House had known that in just three months, NASA would serve a central role in the Cold War and be responsible for defending national honor, Webb would never have been offered the job and the sixteen candidates before Webb would not have turned the job down. But NASA will serve that central role in the Cold War, because on April 12, 1961, Yuri Gagarin will become the first man in outer space. More about that next time. Interested in seeing photos related to this episode? Check out SpaceRaceHistoryPodcast.com or click on the link in the description for this episode.